0: Well, there is an app, there's an app on my phone called the Babylon Bee. Have any of you guys heard of this? <laughs> oh, wow. Um, it's kind of like a news app, except all the stories are made up. They, um, they'll take something that's kind of true, and then they really run with it in a sanctified satire kind of way, if there is such a thing as that. Well, this week they posted an article. They posted an article to um, coincide with the start of Lent. And right below this picture of this really young, good-looking hipster who's sitting in a church looking very pious, uh, they put this headline. Here's what the headline said. Catholic plans to spend Lent giving up something he really shouldn't have been doing in the first place. (laughs) Here's an excerpt from the article. I love this. The 40 days of Lent are a time when many Catholic and Orthodox Christians and a few Protestant weirdos (laughs) fast from something as a way of reflecting and preparing their hearts for Good Friday and Easter Sunday and exploring Christ's 40-day fast in the desert. For many, it's a time to take a break from things that aren't sinful in and of themselves but can distract from serving God. For others, it's just kind of a, what everyone else is doing, so, you know, might as well. This time of year, here's a little quote from a fictional character, this time of year is really difficult because there's so many things I probably should give up, but I'm not really sure I want to, Jack Nunnink said. Like honoring Christ's sacrifice is important to me or whatever. (laughs) But I also don't want to do anything that will, you know, change my life too much. I think at this point I'm tending towards cutting back on carbs, Nunning finally decided. It's, you know, something I really should be watching anyway, and it'll help me lose some weight and, you know, the whole Jesus thing for sure. (laughs) Wow. That is all, you know, a little too real for sure. There is a lot to love about Lent. There is a lot to love about Lent. For example, I love that Lent is something that has a potential to unite us across all of these divisions that we put in place with denominations and different you know, beliefs and churches and all these things. You know, wouldn't it be cool someday if all of us as professing believers would take even a season and we'd teach from the same texts and we'd sing some of the same songs and we'd pray some of the same prayers and we'd focus on the same fast do you think god would bless something like that another thing i love about lent besides the fact that it somewhat unites some of us you know during the weeks leading up to easter another thing i love about lent is it focuses our attention on following jesus following him. Isn't that the essence of Christianity? It's following Jesus. That is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. And when it comes to following Jesus, one of the things you're going to find in every one of the four gospel accounts, there's a follow me or more passage in there. Every one of them. Let's take a look. Uh, i me just to show you some examples from each of the Gospels. If you have your Bible with you, let's open up to the book of Matthew. We'll look at one from Matthew, and then we'll look at one from Mark, and one from Luke, and one from John. If you don't, oh, we're gonna, this one's in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 20. If you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love for you to go home with one, absolutely free. Each and every week, we keep a stack there in the back there for you to take home as a gift to you. All right, here we go. Uh, Matthew chapter 4, uh, verses 18 through 20. Here's one of many follow me passages. Well, walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea for what they were, what they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Now, this is a passage we've studied before. And we've looked at how this was not just giving up carbs. This was a big, big, big ask. This was trusting Jesus to be their new and primary source of identity and security and purpose. All right, so there's one example of Jesus saying, follow me and what that meant. All right, let's look in Mark. Here's an example from Mark chapter 10. These are verses 17 through 22. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22. Another follow me passage. And Jesus was setting out on his journey. And a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commands. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And the man said to him, hey, teacher, all of these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, what are the next two words? loved him never forget that when jesus brings a hard word he loved him he loved him and said to him you lack one thing go sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me in this case disheartened by the saying the young man went away sorrowful for he had great possessions okay are you starting to see a little bit of a trend here when jesus says follow me there's usually some sort of cost associated with that in these follow me invitations. All right, let's go to Luke now. We start to see how costly these can be. This is Luke chapter nine, verses 23 through 25. Luke chapter nine, verses 23 through 25. Talk about costly here. And Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains a whole world and loses or forfeits himself? This is one of those, co- those quotes from Jesus that doesn't sound very Christ-like to modern ears. Right? And isn't that ironic that so often these things that Jesus himself says don't sound Christ-like because we've been given different understandings of who Christ is. So much that's said about Jesus in modern conversation separates. It separates. You almost have people dividing into camps over this. It separates the care and the compassion and the grace from what Jesus says about commitment and conviction and truth. He said both of those things. All right, let's look at one more example. This one is from the Gospel of John. Let's look at John chapter 10. These are verses 25 through 28. John chapter 10, 25 through 28. Ah, there it is. Jesus answered them. He said, I told you and you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you're not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Well, this one here in John, this is as challenging as the rest of them. I came across this quote. I was working with our youth staff on how do we take confirmation at Emmanuel to the the next level, and here's a, a quote that I came across as I was doing some research. How many parts of a sheep can you eliminate and still have a sheep? Isn't that an interesting question? How many parts of a sheep can you eliminate instead of a sheep? Are those of us who identify as Christian, are we really following in the footsteps of Jesus? This is what we focus on, hopefully all throughout the year, but especially in this time in Lent. You know, Or are we closer to that guy in the Babylon Bee article than we'd like to admit? You know, One of the things that I want to try the best I, that I can as an individual and then to create a culture like this at our church is what if we could be as spoof proof as possible where we were so sincere about really trying authentically to to follow jesus it was really hard to to spoof us you know because it was it was real you know well the first century followers of jesus they were far from perfect far from perfect we often forget that they had all kinds of issues all kinds of problems didn't they that first century church. But so many of them were so committed to following Jesus and following his example and following his teaching that many around them, they gave them a name. They didn't know what to call these people, you know? And so there's a place to write this in your notes. Before they were called Christians, disciples of Jesus were known as followers of what? The way. That's what they called them. They were so living a way of life that was so different than others. They said. They call them followers of the way. You're, you're, you're of this way, this way of Jesus. The first century followers of Jesus, they began aligning their lives so closely with Jesus' life and his teaching, people began to describe them as followers of the way. And I want to give you a quote from one of these followers of the way. This is from a letter that was written by a convert to the way of Jesus. His name was Paul. Paul had been going a very different way until he had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus that changed his life forever. And Jesus commissioned this man. He commissioned Paul to go and take his message out into the world. And no one in history outside of Jesus himself did more to spread the good news of Jesus than Paul. Well, last year during Lent, we explored a letter that Paul wrote to people living in a city called Corinth. And one of the things that we learned last year is how many parallels there were between the Corinthian culture and our own culture. Well, here's one of the things that Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote in one of his letters to the Corinthians, he said this, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he said, follow my example as I follow the example of who? Christ. You know, he, he wanted his way to be about Jesus' way to the point where he could say, okay, you want to know what it means to follow Jesus? Follow me, follow my example, because I'm trying to live this out through the power of the Holy Spirit. In a follow-up letter, Paul doubled down on that. Consider the strength of his words here. This is out of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 through 4 and verse 13. Paul said, I'm afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one that we proclaimed, if you receive a different spirit than the one you received, if you accept a different gospel than the one you accepted, you you just put up with it readily enough. Such men are false prophets. They're deceitful workmen. They're disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So we can look back to the earliest of early Christianity, and we can see that already people were getting confused over what does it mean to be a follower of the way. And one of the things the Corinthians didn't have to contend with is the web. Because I went this week as I was preparing for this message, I said, let's just see what happens if I type in Jesus into Google. And in less than 0.6 seconds, over a billion links were at my disposal. So I checked them all out, and here's the definitive. (laughs) We are constantly bombarded, aren't we? We are constantly bombarded with all kinds of different ideas and concepts of who Jesus was and what his message was and what it means to be a follower of his. And wow, can that be confusing. You know, and while as we're going to talk about later in this message, none of us ever fully arrive at figuring it all out. If you think you have, (laughs) let's, let's, let's talk. (laughs) None of us do, right? We're always learning. We're always growing, but it can be so confusing even to have a starting point for what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? We're constantly bombarded by countless voices who proclaim a different Jesus than the scriptures proclaim and a different spirit than the one who gave birth to the church and a different gospel than the one that Paul commissioned, was commissioned to proclaim. And you know why that's so sad? It's because the real Jesus is so good. Can I get an amen to that? The different Jesus, you don't want that. The real Jesus is so, so good. He's the one you want to get to know. So one of the things we we try to always do in this church is point you back to the word, but what if you took this Lent to read or reread the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and read the source material, the, 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 the documents in history that have been the most vetted throughout history, the most carefully... Uh, Placed you know the, of all of these, look at the first hand materials and see what what they actually say about about Jesus and what they don 't say about the way of Jesus. If you finish those there 's another book that we put in your notes, not because it 's the definitive one, but it 's one that 's really good. Um, this one about from Scott McKnight called one life it 's a, it's a very good book if you read the others first that, that helps try to explore what does it mean to really follow in the way of Jesus. so much of what McKnight emphasized in his, his book, is he emphasized how much when he was a kid, he saw a different Jesus being presented in, in his church. And it's a very classic one. It's a very common one. But it was this, this Jesus where you say a prayer once in your life, and then you kind of do these devotional practices, and that's and it's summing up the Christian life. And he writes this in another one of his books. He says, when the plan of salvation gets separated from the story then the plan almost always becomes abstract. It becomes propositional and logical and rational and philosophical. And almost importantly, it becomes destorified. It becomes unbiblical. When we separate the plan of salvation from the story, we separate ourselves from Jesus and we turn the Christian faith into a system of salvation. When we stop actually looking at Jesus and his life and we just reduce it to some sort of system of, We're we're missing out. Well, Dallas Willard, I love Dallas Willard. He gets, his language is even stronger. He puts it like this. He says, the gospels of sin management presume a Christ with no serious work other than redeeming humankind. And his words, not mine. They foster vampire Christians who only want a little blood for their sins. Nothing more to do with Jesus until heaven. We want to go way beyond that, right? In this Lent, again, read Jesus' words for yourself. Go and read those amazing words. And if you do, one of the things you're going to see consistently, he was inviting people to follow him. The other word he used a lot was disciple. And when people described everything happening around him, that word disciple was there. What does it mean to become his disciples? Well, over the course of this series, what we're going to intentionally do is we're going to press into some of the areas of discipleship where I see the most misrepresentation of Jesus being communicated on a wide scale. And so we're going to look right here on Sunday mornings. So we're going to look at what is it? what did Jesus actually model and teach when it comes to um, our longings and our desires? What did Jesus model and teach when it comes to hypocrisy and how quick we are to point fingers at others, how slow we are to look at our own lives and how that's the very essence of hypocrisy, right? We're going to look at the extremes of Pharisee and prodigal and how Jesus pointed us down a narrow path that was neither of those things. We're going to look at how Jesus approached the books of the Bible that are in our Old Testament, including the book of Leviticus. We're going to look at what Jesus said about family. What did he say about that? We're going to look at what Jesus said about the cost of discipleship. We're going to look at the example that he revealed himself, of how he revealed himself to, to his disciples after his death and resurrection. All of those are conversations that we're going to have right here during Lent on Sunday mornings. And in addition to that, we've also booked um, a, a place off-site where we can also have a candid conversation. We booked a Friday evening and a Saturday morning on April 3rd and 4th. You don't have to write those dates down right now. We'll have them all, all this information next week, hopefully, but you can if you want. And what we're going to do on Friday and Saturday, we're going to have a, a candid and, and difficult conversation about the number one faith conversation that I see dividing families right now. It's dividing workplaces, it's dividing churches, it's dividing denominations. And that is, what does the way of Jesus look like for those who have same-sex attractions? And the reason we're booking more time for that is because this is a challenging, challenging conversation. And we don't want to just have a one-way voice from the front You know, saying we want to be able to sit around tables and talk and open our Bibles together and look at other resources. You know, what does it mean to extend love and grace the way that Jesus extended love and grace? And what does it mean to honor the Father and to speak the truth the way that Jesus honored the Father and spoke the truth? So on Friday night in this event, we're going to start with prayer and worship because we want to make sure that our minds and our hearts as best we can are aligned with with God's mind and heart. We want to make a covenant straight up with one another that we're going to listen really, really well, really, really well. We're going to then do some reviewing. What did we learn in the book of Joel? What did we learn about the way of Jesus? And talk about some other big macro themes that we see in scripture. And that'll be Friday. And then um, on Saturday morning, then we'll open our Bibles up after we've done all of that work. We'll open our Bibles up to those five passages that are causing the most division and the most controversy, and we'll look at them in context, and we'll have conversations about those. And then after a short break, we'll have conversations about, okay, now what does this mean? How how do we live this out well? So right now all you have to do is save the date. Hopefully, by next week, we'll have have the registration details available for, for those who would like to be a part of that conversation. Um, And also, just even today, if you'd like to take a closer look at some of the resources that I've been digging into for the last eight years on this, I can show you and answer any questions. I'll do my best I can to answer your questions, because this is an important conversation, isn't it? And isn't it really important that we have it well? To have it well, well. So that's uh, some of what's coming up. Before we close our time today, what I want to do, before we close our time today, is spend just a few minutes Addressing another really important question before we start this series. And that's the question, why Jesus? Isn't that an important question? Someday we'll do a series on that because it's a, it, it warrants a deeper dive than you can give. But before we start the series, I just want to give you my best four-minute shot at giving you four thoughts as far as why Jesus. Why not Muhammad? Why not one of the other ancient kings that claim to speak on behalf of god why not one of modern day prophets who say no i know the way and let me tell you the way why jesus so here's my best shot at four reasons in four minutes um, let's start with this why jesus because his life divided what his life is the one that divided history Um, Let me put it this way: With a show of hands, how many of you believe that meteors have struck the Earth more than 100 years ago? How many believe meteors? All right. How do you know that? You weren't around 100 years ago, right? One of the ways, reasons we can say that with confidence is because the meteors left behind evidence, right? Evidence of their impact. Here's an example: You can go to Arizona, and you can see this. And this doesn't even give you a a hint at the magnitude of this impact from a meteor that hit the earth long, 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 long ago. We know that it happened because we can see the impact, right? And this one left a big, big, big impact. Something impacted the earth long ago. We can see the evidence today. If you're saying, if you're using this as an excuse, saying, well, I don't have time to study all the people who have claimed to speak on behalf of God, all the people that say they can show me the way, I can narrow your list down to two really quick. There's only two men that affected the world history when it comes to faith on a, on a, on a massive scale. You know, at least on a comparable, if you put all the rest up to and that's Jesus and Muhammad. And I would love for you to compare those two. I would love for you to do that. I would love for you to compare the way they lived. I would love for you to compare the things they taught. I would love for you to compare the prophecies that they did or didn't fulfill. I would love for you to compare the manner in which their words and teachings were collected and confirmed and passed down. Compare the manner in which they responded to people who believed differently than they did. And compare the impact they had. Roughly 2 billion people today follow the way of Muhammad, or at least say they do. Roughly 2 billion people today say they follow the way of Jesus. But compare the impact that they had on how the world treats women, on how the world cares for the poor and marginalized, on the arts and on the sciences, on health care, on hospitals, on literacy, on education. There are countless reasons, countless reasons why Jesus is the life that divided history. H.G. Wells puts it like this. He says, a historian like myself, who doesn't even call himself a Christian, finds the picture centering irresistibly around the life and character of this most significant man. The historian's test of an individual's greatness is what did he leave to grow? Did he start men thinking along fresh lines with a vigor that persisted after him? By this test, Jesus stands first. And here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus. As if all those other things aren't enough. We have multiple credible witnesses coming out of the first century claiming that Jesus was more than a man. These witnesses claim that Jesus of Nazareth had power to heal. He had the power over nature. He had the power to cast out evil spirits. He even had power over death, which brings us to number two. Why Jesus, his tomb is empty. Again, we have multiple highly credible witnesses that testify to the unbelievable that his tomb was empty and they saw him after they saw him killed, that he rose again. This week, I was reviewing a book by John Ortberg that we recommended many years ago. It's a book called Who Is This Man? In his book, Ortberg Ortberg claims that the word cemetery, I'd forgotten all about this, the word cemetery comes from a Greek word meaning sleeping place. Isn't that interesting? Cemetery comes from a Greek word meaning sleeping place. As if to imply there is hope that someday we'll awaken to a new reality. And Ortberg also describes or reminds us how the numbers on the tombstone, the numbers, right? Whose life are they aligned with? They're in reference to... Interesting, but we have more. We have more than a future hope of awakening later when we follow Jesus, really, really follow him. This is another thing. Number three, why Jesus? His kingdom is here. His kingdom is here. For Jesus, that word kingdom, it meant God's dreams for the world coming true. And in that book we recommended earlier by Scott McKnight, he refers to Jesus. Jesus is a dream awakener. And we don't have to simply wait and simply hope. We can see and experience glimpses of the kingdom right now. We see glimpses, those of us who are connected to that little hill in Juarez with a big yellow house on it. Can't we testify that the kingdom is present there? It is at work there. Those of us who've been up to camp and have been a part of a really good camp, we can testify the kingdom of God is there. And I'm looking across this room. So many of you can testify the kingdom of God is here in our lives, working all around us. Jesus invited people to come and see, he said. Come and see. And what they saw and what they experienced inspired fishermen to drop their nets, inspired the wealthy to rethink what does it mean to really be rich. It inspired men and women to take up their crosses. And it inspired people on every continent to tune their ears to the shepherd's voice. And that brings us to number four. Why Jesus? Because Jesus is the way. Amen. Amen. He didn't just claim to be a way. He didn't just claim to show you the way and show us the way. Here's a quote from Jesus himself. This one was passed down by one of his disciples who was willing to lay down his life for these words. Jesus said, I am the way. John 14, 6. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And exactly. And very early on, disciples like Paul began to say things like this. He said, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but what? It is Christ who lives in me. They began to use just different languages for this. It wasn't just, I'm following the teachings of this great teacher. He was somehow in them, transforming them from the inside, their hearts and their minds. This is in part what we mean when we invite you to experience God with us. Experience God with us. And Lent is a great season to do that. If you could just take out your bulletins briefly and look at the cover, this graphic, I absolutely love the graphic that the team came up with for this series, this series of doors, one leading to the next, to the next, to the next. Oh, it's so good. Because isn't that so much like our faith, right? It's okay, I'm gonna bring you this far and now here's another door. And then I'm gonna bring you this far and here's another door. And then we go further and then here's another another door. And each of these doors brings us closer to it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Every door brings us closer to whoever is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Every one of these doors brings us closer and closer to his commands are not burdensome. Every one of these doors brings us closer and closer to we don't have to be conformed to this world. We can be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Every door brings us closer and closer to experiencing the life of God that our soul longs for most. So, join us this Lent. Because each week we're going to step up to a door. We're going to step up next week to the no other gods door. No other gods. Week after that, we're going to step up to the look in the mirror before you point a finger at somebody else's door week after that, we're going to focus on this narrow road door. And and then after that, the all scripture is God-breathed door. And the what does it mean to be a child of God door. And the take up your cross door. And uh, I'm going to follow Jesus out of this tomb and into the world door. We're going to come to each one of those doors in the weeks ahead. Well, the door this morning is this one. And there's the last blank in your notes today is this. This morning we invite you to step through the disciple of Jesus' door. This morning, we invite you to make a decision for the first time or the recommit to saying, I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus. I'm going to learn from him. I'm going to follow his ways. I'm going to seek what he had to say about things. I'm going to order my life around his through the power of his Holy Spirit. I want to go simply beyond praying a prayer And we have one last quote for you that kind of speaks to that. Once long ago, this man said, I heard John Stott say that some people have been talking about the irreducible minimum gospel. And he dismissed such an idea. He said, who wants an irreducible minimum gospel? I want the full biblical gospel. Amen. I know we have a lot of coffee drinkers here. Coffee drinkers, could you raise your hand? How many of you seek out the minimum requirements for something to be coffee? And that's what you're going for. This thing qualifies technically as coffee. No one goes after that, right? If you're a real coffee drinker, right? Okay. Uh, any football fans here? How many of you would pay NFL prices for something that technically qualifies as kind of football? Right? It just doesn't even register, No one dreams of living in a home that meets the minimum requirements for being considered a house. No one dreams of being in a relationship that meets the minimum requirements for technically being a marriage, right? This is not what we long for. We want the real thing, right? Let's go after the real thing this Lent. Amen. Amen.